Good afternoon, you're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashan Johan. It's the 21st of September, which means it's International Day of Peace according to the UN. The 2022 theme for the International Day of Peace is End Racism, Build Peace. As stated on the UN website, and I quote, this means working towards a world free of racism and racial discrimination, a world where compassion and empathy overcome suspicion and hatred. It requires the building of societies where all members feel that they can flourish. So in light of that, we're going to be discussing racism in Malaysia and what we can do about it. Joining me on the show to discuss this is Jason Wee. He's the co-founder of Architects of Diversity. Welcome to the show, Jason. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, I'm going to ask what may come off as a seemingly basic question, but perhaps there are a lot of complexities to unpack from it. And that is, what is racism exactly? Hey, Dasher, and thanks for having me on again. So I, I don't think it's basic per se, right? I think the common perception of uh, what is racism among many people is a very interpersonal version of racism, where it's someone treating someone else badly because of someone's race. When in reality, racism as we know it is a bit more complex than that. Uh, it's referring to a kind of shift in power, right? When race is kind of used and mobilized against someone, it can be interpersonal. It can be on one-to-one basis, but it also has a larger story about how that interaction takes place in a larger system of power under a systemic uh, kind of racism, where it can start. Uh, it can start as an individual. Imagine like kind of the most basic level of society, right? When you know, you know, you're living in a cave or a commune, obviously, you know, without levels of authority. But the moment you know you start building upon those layers of society. Racism then can come can be, can become systemic, where it is embedded in norms, embedded in implicit bias, is embedded in institutions, is embedded in policies, and all these you know little factors come to a point where a situation can be you know racist, or an individual can experience a large extent of systemic racism, but you cannot point it to a single individual. It's right. diffused across a system of power. Um, but I also mentioned that, you know, racism isn't necessarily just pointed out by race. It can also be a correlation of skin color, caste, uh, place of descent, all of which, you know, constitutes how we construct and perceive race in many places. Right. So, you know, people, when we zoom in on Malaysia, right, people mm-hmm. often say that um, diversity is great because you have, uh, you know, more ideas, more exchange of ideas, uh, different cultures can come together, can learn from each other, and, and so on and so forth. Yet our country, if you look at it over the past 60 years, especially in recent years, it has become increasingly polarized um, across racial and religious lines. Do you agree with this, that it's becoming um, increasingly polarized? And if so, what do you think we as a nation did wrong? So I, I think, you know, we really need to backtrack here on, you know, how do we perceive or what what should we think about diversity? Because diversity is not this silver bullet where, you know, country has diversity and it's either good or bad. It's definitely not uh, not that situation, right? This, the diversity is more of a descriptive factor. Right. And so some studies across the world have showed that across time, uh, when a nation has increased diversity, that's also increased competition and increased cooperation uh across the time period. But we also sometimes forget that, you know, our parameter of study is that, you know, when we look at countries like India and Pakistan or the Koreas where, uh, you know, these sources of diversity can become uh, big causes of conflict as well. So I think it's really a question of inclusive institutions. In that moment of time or in that, you know, period of history, 
are there inclusive institutions to properly capture, manage, and exploit uh, the diversity in society to make sure that it becomes a productive force of good? So I think, you know, when we ask about polarization today, I think we first need to ask why polarization now globally? And so I, I would say across the world, polarization is becoming an increasingly hard problem to deal with, especially in diverse nations. Um, definitely is perceived as such. And I, I think a root cause of this uh, in, ma- in many ways is the speed of which we receive and produce information on social media. Um, a lot of times, you know, these polarizations uh, happen. Uh, we're already there uh, before the age of internet and social media, but they were amplified and accelerated because of the rate at which we consume information. But then we move the question to why polarization now in Malaysia? And I, I think for a matter of fact, you know, we ha- I, it feels at least, it feels that we have become more polarized as well. But a lot of the fundamentals of that polarization here comes from, and it's marked by uh, factors from May 13, right? So right. a lot of the seeds and roots of these conflicts were already, you know, taken place from 1969. Uh, obviously, they've been festering, and we haven't done much to reconcile those festers. Um, and when the moment comes when uh, we have social media and large institutions across history uh, that have only amplified these differences, then diversity becomes an issue when you don't have those inclusive institutions to really bridge the gaps. I'm wondering, Jason, um, and I think this sort of jumps off your May 13 um um, sort of um, example that you give, but also it be, uh, you know expands into something more. And I'm I'm wondering, do you think that Malaysia is a post-colonial country that hasn't dealt with this, with its post-colonial identity crisis, right? And and the reason I I'm using your May 13 to jump off and to to you know pivot to this question is because you know even when we look at how we handled May 13. It feel you know when we read history and all, it's it's like you know a very quick compromise, and then it's like okay, let's sweep it under the rug and let's move on. And then for years and years, pol- uh, people in the political spectrum would sort of let that hang over society, you know, like a dark cloud, in, and saying you know things like don't do this, don't say that, don't talk about this, otherwise you know May thirteen, May thirteen will happen. Remember May thirteen, and do you think that has sort of sort of led us to where we are today. Yeah. So, so the question is that, you know, have we dealt with our really kind of identity mm-hmm. crisis? I, I mean, the, the really easy answer to that is, uh, of course, no. Right. Um, I, I mean, not, without even getting to May 13 first, I think um, Malaysia's dialogue on identity has been really um, one-dimensional. Uh, since, you know, we've had various campaigns about how Malaysia is very united, you know, Kita Satu Malaysia and so on and so forth. Um, that hasn't dealt with the conflicts bit. So we've had very little or to no ability or institutions that can really um, reconcile the different demands of different groups. But moving on specifically to May 13, um, I I think one thing to note uh, here is that many documents surrounding May 13 hasn't been declassified, right? So oftentimes we were really, one, basing off testimonials of individuals, two, going off theories, and three, also not really discussing what has happened in May 13. Now, compare that situation to, say, countries that have perhaps made some moves in uh, kind of dealing with their identities or dealing with their kind of historical boogeymen. Um, for example, with the U.S., sure, the U.S. is not 
the you know by no means a perfect place on earth right. but the amount of investment they put into research into understanding and really deconstructing in their racial categories even in their census uh, right now uh, Pew, for example the Pew Research Center is doing amazing work deconstructing race and seeing how that what what that category could look like in the future is really a good contention of how um, the U.S. is at least some parts of it has come to really tackle the question of race. When we look in South Africa, for example, uh, post-apartheid, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, obviously did many things for uh, reconciling social tensions and conflicting demands among society. And so I think when we contrast that with Malaysia, where not only do we have uh, various speech codes that have stifled debate uh, about race, where, you know, just mentioning May 13, I recall a couple of years back, uh, attending a Malaysia Kini event about May 13 and, you know, a special branch would, was surrounding the event. It was literally just right. a forum with, with May 13 survivors. Um, and, and even that was, you know, a huge uh, kind of kind of scary thing uh, for, right. for people in power. But I think not only have we stifled discussion or debate, we also have avoided it. So for those, um, you know, even myself as a educator for many youth and secondary school students, I am I myself am a bit scared to even touch May 13 sometimes because uh, there's a chilling effect from these speech codes. Right. So I think we haven't hit the moment in time when one, we're fully expressing and discussing what exactly happened in May 13 out in the open, just because there's that chilling environment. Uh, the second thing is that even after May 13, right? at all the um, kind of uh, demands or at least griefs that have been felt from policies post May 13 uh, are still quite stifled as well. So the question is then, do we have that pop proper public forum or uh, avenue to discuss these things? And that is a, a long way from uh, answering yes to that. Even be going before May 13, right? And just looking at what is Malaysia? What is our identity? What is this identity crisis that we are facing right now? Do you think it is important for a country, um, especially a diverse country like Malaysia, to forge a national identity? Uh, for example, and I'm going off the example of, let's say, uh, Fami Reza's documentary, uh, Sablo Town, Sablo Merdeka. Um, what was I found super fascinating about the documentary was that 10 years before Merdeka, there were two sort of constitutions in contest, right? On the one hand is the constitution that eventually won and the, the one we have till today. And on the other hand was something those leftists and, and so on and so forth they were pushing for. And it was this idea that everybody in Malaysia, everyone born here on this soil will henceforth be known as Melayu. Um, regardless of, of you know what your, your ethnicity is, your religion is, and, and so on and so forth. Do you think it is important for a country to forge that kind of identity? Yeah. So I, I get this question sometimes, and I'm a bit torn about this question, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, one, it's because uh, the, the, the concept of national identity is tied so closely to this idea of a nation state and a nation building project, right? Um, right? To the point where, for example, in other countries, like, for example, Thailand, where uh, you have to remove some parts of, cultures or languages that were already there in favor of a dominant uh, language to kind of formulate or conceive of this nation state, a kind of this unified body. But whether, you know, is it important now? I think the question is more so now, uh, you already kind of need a national identity given that nation state is our current 
you know, global paradigm of global order. But I think how the national identity should be forged is a, a question to be answered. Yeah. I, I like to use the metaphor of a cloud versus a box, uh, where a cloud is always shifting. You know, it can grow larger, it can grow smaller, it can move to different places. Versus a box, it's you know, it's a solid parameter. It's uh, opaque and a bit hard to penetrate. What I think we're at right now is we have a very boxed-in definition of what it means to be Malaysian, right? And and this is why I cringe a bit every time people say, um, "Oh, you know, Nasilama, this and that." Uh, <laughs> that that's so Malaysian, right? I'm like, right, okay, but if that is so Malaysian, what does it mean to be un-Malaysian, right? Mm-hmm. And the moment we use that kind of adjective, it necessitates uh, in-group and out-group, or an in our, you know, what is Malaysian and what is not Malaysian. Rather, I think we need a more fluid definition of what it means to be Malaysia that's, you know, continuously evolving, um, that can take some core essences, but it's also quick to absorb new ones when it comes. I say this specifically because uh, while Malaysians are, you know, many many Malaysians are victims of racism, we must also acknowledge the massive uh, racism and xenophobia put on our new immigrants, uh, our Bangladeshi, right. our Nepali, our Indonesian, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in Malaysia at the moment, that they have lived, you know, in Malaysia, many of them for decades speak BM or, you know, however markers of national identity you want to put on them. But whatever culture they bring in is identified as non-Malaysian. Um, right. And so at what point does do those aspects become or become more recognized as Malaysian? And I think that's the fear of using a national identity so strongly as a boxed-in kind of category, is that that really can be a fun- fundamental to how a racial order is also built up. On the show with me today is Jason Wee, co-founder of Architects of Diversity. After the break, we discuss solutions to racial polarization in Malaysia. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashan Johan, and on the show with me today is Jason Wee, co-founder of Architects of Diversity. And we're talking about racism in Malaysia, in light of International Day of Peace 2022, which has the theme, and racism, build peace. So, Jason, many academics, um, uh, you know, many people in academia, even activists and, and so on and so forth, even on a global level, um, they have highlighted um, that racism was and is essentially an economic project, um, that the very concept of, a ra- of race and a racial ladder was created to justify theft and exploitation. How do you see it, especially in the context of Malaysia? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think to that to the idea first, uh, yes, I mean, economic competition definitely plays a part in how uh, racism and the racial order is conceived of. But it, I, I think it's a huge oversimplification of that, uh, mainly because that the, the, the kind of level of cognitive mechanisms that work to kind of support uh, racism and the racial order goes way beyond uh, economics per se. It, it touches the cultural, it, cultures, it touches the social. Uh, so for example, in psychology, one kind of famous experiment is that we are willing to punish ourselves, uh, you know, quantitatively to punish the outgroup, right? That means we are willing to hurt ourselves to hurt others. Uh, and that goes kind of way beyond um, kind of an economic calculus. It goes it goes into emotion, kind of a primal uh, question as well of what it means to be in and out. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in the context of Malaysia, this is especially true uh, where uh, racism isn't just a 
economic order. It is a it's a question of political and cultural dominance, right? Where um, our systems of power are kind of separate, and it was kind of you know very much architectured that way. Where you know if the Chinese were left to the devices of the economy, then uh, Malay individuals post post colonialism were left to the devices of the political structures. And so yes, it, it is interconnected, but um, it I think at least in among the large many layers of society um, that how racism operates both cognitively and culturally is definitely not just economic. So how do we even begin to talk about racism in Malaysia? Because there's just so many layers to it, right? I think the most simplistic example is let's say we talk to the regular Joe on the street. Um, and we talk about the privilege of the majority. The majority can simply point to the top 10 richest people in Malaysia, the, the list, and say, do you see us represented on the list? Which is an incredibly valid point. But at the same time, minorities, for example, Malaysian Indians, face very real racism at the job market, the rental property market, education, etc., etc., etc. And this is regardless of how much wealth the likes of Tony Fernandez and Ananda Krishnan have it matters nothing to the plantation worker, the lorry drivers, and the, the Indian poor, the Indian middle class, for example. So where do we start when it comes to talking about racism in Malaysia? So, and I think it is, you know, very much complex. And I, I would think that racism in Malaysia is very difficult compared to other nations because, one, uh, our power is diffused quite differently across different groups. And so when I say, you know, how I would recommend to start talking about racism is really looking at power and privilege and analyzing uh, in what domains do some groups have dominance over. So for example, you can typically, you know, you would use either cultural power, political power, or economic power. So, you know, very much, I mean, look at an economy, for example, um, you know, many individuals point that Chinese individuals have greater economic mobility compared to other groups, which I wouldn't dispute at all. But then you move quite quickly to the political order and suddenly it's a different question, right? Um, right. It's very much not the dominant group in that case. And I think it's because of the different you know, hierarchies in different domains. It's, that's exactly why Malaysia is so difficult to talk, uh, to talk about. So I would recommend you know, when we do talk about racism, one, we analyze uh, you know, how is a group impacted differently. That it's not just a ranking of one, two, three, four, where you know Malays, you know Malays are more powerful and privileged compared to Chinese, and I don't think it's a, it's it's not going to be as straightforward as that. Whether something right. is racist or not racist, but rather uh, we kind of need to look at racism in a, a sense that it needs to be dismantled, and that dismantling requires an analysis of what can be racism, what can be racist in certain contexts. So, for example, when we talk about rent, the rental uh, market. And many, for example, Chinese landlords uh, refuse to rent to Indian uh, minorities. It's exactly in these situations that um, the racial order becomes very strong in that particular domain between the different groups. Um, and so, uh, but at the same time, you know, both Chinese and Indian individuals are you know, systematically uh, locked out from scholarship opportunities, from loan opportunities within government, for example. And so, where does where do you start in that? It needs to be a kind of big picture analysis of what uh, that racial order looks like. It's not easy. And, and you know, as I, you know, I'm articulating in this now, you can see why it's so difficult right. to Absolutely. analyze because individuals have vastly different experiences across different domains. 
And so by uniting the differences in, in you know, and reconciling what happens uh, across the board and not just like, you know, obviously the Ananda Krishnans or Tony Fernandez's and those are or what we would deem possibly exceptions, uh, albeit very important markers of who can, who has some market share in that case. How do we move that then to um, talking about, okay, yes, it is uh, racism in particular domains, but understanding that that racial group can experience something completely differently in somewhere else. Right. So what are the systems and structures in place that uphold racism? Right. So I think to understand this, we need to kind of go back to the institutional race, right? Where how did you, you know, be, that should become Indian? How did I become right. Chinese? And so on and so forth. It's, it's really the process of racialization. So the, the fundamental system or structure that upholds racism is the, this kind of salience of race within society. And it can come, it, you know, it obviously was caused by many factors. Obviously, the one main one being uh, the British uh, factor of it where, you know, I won't go too much into it, but the button conquer that has, that uses system categorization in order to hold people into place. But uh, I think it was really, and to go back to May 13, it was that incident in 1969 where race was choreographed into becoming true fear, where it, race became uh, a permeating factor, not only in political life, but also in social life and, you know, how individuals, it kind of broke that trust, right? That moment uh, between different groups. And so not only did race start permeating uh, between in, within the cultural uh, sphere, uh, it also meant that when individuals see each other now, race becomes the most perhaps salient uh, feature right. in most places. And it's because of that, uh, most sal- that salience is that uh, politicians uh, can continuously bank in on race uh, to uh, mobilize individuals, uh, their kind of supporter base, by increasing threat uh, between different groups. So obviously, you know, for example, in Architects of Diversity, we, in the Ring of Black elections, we analyze and monitor the race and religion card and which politicians use it. And, you know, all parties were, you know, very much guilty of doing so uh, because uh, race is becomes, uh, has become um, the kind of primary motivating uh, cognition for many people. And so, you know, when you go back, going back to question, what are systems and structures in place? It's really the institution of race and how politicians bank in on that race uh, card and using race to perpetuate that level of racial order. Uh, how to move away from that, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's, I think, a scientific, both an academic and ethical question of the 21st century. We see across the globe that many, many other nations as well uh, have continuously banked in on race as a mobilizing factor uh, for political gain. And how do we build resilience among people to make sure that uh, that they don't respond to these um, manufactured threats or perhaps real threats sometimes uh, in order to vote for, say, mono-ethnic or you know, race-baiting political parties in that sense. Would you say that, you know, like you alluded to, um, you know, there is the British factor, there's the coloni- colonialism factor, right? Because, um, you know, histor- historically, when we look at how the idea, very idea of, of uh, race and the racial ladder came about, it has to do a lot with European, uh, the European empire, the, the colonization and, and so on and so forth, right? But would you say that since, you know, yes, we may have fought the, the quote-unquote colonizers and, and you know, uh, gained independence, but what has happened since then, um, 
and you know intensified um, because of May 13 is that the politicians have just pretty much inherited uh, and and continued the systems that British had in place. We talk about divide and conquer, the kind of language, racialized, racialized language that was used by the British back in the day and things like that. And is in essence, that is why that's one of the reasons why like this this sort of racialized outlook we have uh, toward each other in Malaysia um, has continued to fester. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean for sure, right? But I, I think also just to not discount that mm-hmm. Malaysia has made amazing strides when it comes to right. to, to many parts of economic life, right? Uh, especially you know in the golden nineties and eighties and nineties where uh, the economy was thriving uh, pre pre obviously Asian financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think most most definitely, and this is a common feature across many nations, uh, both Asian and African nations, where. Uh, the new powers that be really essentially just inherit uh, the systems and levers and uh, kind of power plays uh, right. done by the colonial powers of yesteryears. But I, I think it's also a uh, then you know definitely added to um, beyond just using the same thing that the British did. Uh, so, for example, in Malaysia, how the new economic policy or NEP, while it has you know increased uh, Bumiputra. Uh, mobility, economic mobility to a great degree and it's very much needed by the way I, I think we need to acknowledge that that was a very much okay. necessary project but the way in which we went about that uh, was a very rigid one where we didn't implement in sunset policies where uh, reviews of that have you know either not uh, you know very been poorly done or revisions need and improvements need to be made towards that project um, where it could be possibly phased out but those projects have you know been tied now closely to a question of uh, political patronage, right? And it's something that needs to be defended over and over again because that is seen as a necessity in the racial order. And so it's both the coupling of that, you know, exactly divide and conquer, but also a project of um, uplifting, you know, uh, B40s or, you know, those socioeconomic disadvantaged before that. And it's a very unique one, I think, position to Malaysia, uh, because it means that while the majority are, you know, necess- necessarily receiving more advantages, uh, very much perhaps well-deserving advantages, uh, many disadvantaged communities who don't fall into those categories are then systematically displaced out. Absolutely. So I know, you know, there's no one-size-fit-all um, solution to solving racism, and we can probably do a million other podcasts on that, uh, just focusing on solutions. But just broadly speaking, you know, um, since the theme is, and uh, the theme of um, this year's International Day of Peace is End Racism and Build Peace, um, what would you say are like the first immediate steps that um, Malaysia needs to take um, to sort of... Um, reduce the polarization that we are that we are seeing right now yeah so i i, I know this as well so, so i'm going to twist the question a bit maybe <laughs> during that um like a lot of people ask me immediate actions but i think the really the game uh or the more strategic play uh you, you know obviously there are a lot of you know short-term or immediate solutions right. but i think when especially on this international day of peace we're talking about how do you tackle racism and its roots it needs to be a question of long game Uh, We're investing not in terms of, you know, immediate KPIs per se, uh, but we're doing two things. We're doing uh, bridging where we're mending and quickening the communication platforms across different groups, right? Be it through physical where like people are literally living together more easily or be it through media 
uh, it needs to be through laws. Uh, are we advancing appropriate laws in the long term? Uh, for example, uh, an anti-discrimination act that you know hasn't seen like day. Oh, and are we properly investing in education that holds up these values, right? And so these three things are long-term projects. They don't happen within even a three to five year span. They happen right. within uh, sometimes 10, 20, 30 year, and it's intertwined with so many other aspects like urban planning or uh, how the economy is structured. And so I think, you know, as individuals or even individuals invested in uh, greater, you know, nation building, you know, for the lack of a better word, um, it needs to be a question of putting money and energy into building these structures. For example, in the U.S., a lot of the uh, kind of institutions that have existed for decades have produced individuals well-placed in different systems of power that are now advancing racial equity. Exactly why, uh, for example, in 2020, the U.S. could have reached this tipping point of realization when there are so many people in different places in power uh, captured or at least could hop on a bandwagon of racial equity discussion back then because of the investment into people and into institutions. Uh, that is not as present in Malaysia right now. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're looking at count- and countering forces that are, you know, perhaps racist or, uh, you know, otherizing or perhaps, uh, you know, bad, you know, de- reject the, this diversity and inclusion idea of what Malaysia should be, uh, they perhaps have invested quite significantly in building the base. And I think for perhaps the more liberal-leaning sections of Malaysia, there needs to be a reinvestment into these building the base, building the numbers and making sure individuals are caught up uh, because the last 20 years have been a very, very quick and rapid conversation about you know racial equity. Having this conversation five years ago would be would be unimaginable. What more right. people who haven't really, um, really latched on? So I think... Really going back to basics and building that fundamental skills and values within society is the long game and strategy here. Absolutely. And before we wrap this conversation up, Jason, would you have a final message for us? Yeah. So I think, you know, for, for International Day of Peace, uh, I think it would be a nice exercise if all of us could imagine a Malaysia without racism. And I think, you know, you know, define it however you want it to define more the most extreme version and the kind of least extreme version, however, you know, you want to take it. But I think practicing that imagination uh, in oneself helps imagine not only how near or how far are we from achieving that, but also where can you fit in into this picture? And is it challenging someone in your workplace? Is it uh, suing that, uh, you know, landlord that doesn't want to rent out to you? Is it taking on uh, challenges that might seem inconvenient? but are perhaps bigger than yourself. That perhaps is how we can play individually into imagining a Malaysia without racism. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dashran. That was Jason Wee, co-founder of Architects of Diversity. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9.